Hello, this is Peter with Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. It's been a while since we've released one of these uh, Bird's Eye View episodes, so quick reminder to our faithful listeners and an explanation for our new listeners. Our Bird's Eye View episodes are recordings of talks given by Waiter Mike usually on a topic of interest or expertise of theirs. If they're able to record the talk, we like to share them with our listeners as a bit of a bonus to our normal episodes and Winging It series. So it's been a while, um, probably more than a year since we last posted a Bird's Eye View episodes, which I guess either means that Mike and Wade aren't being asked to speak very often or they're forgetting to bring the recording equipment when they are asked. I'll let you figure that one out. Um, the talk in this episode was given by Mike at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in McGuanago, Wisconsin on February 13th, 2020. He's in it. Uh, in it, he um, discusses the four loves in Greek, uh, philia, eros, storge, and agape. And although he follows this basic structure of C.S. Lewis's book entitled The Four Loves, this talk was not an exposition of that work, but rather Mike discusses these four loves within the context of what Christ does for us and how Christ works through it. But I'll let him explain that all to you in just a moment. So a big thanks to St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church for inviting Mike to speak and for allowing us to share this with our listeners. We hope you enjoy the talk. Okay, thank you for having me. When Pastor Bordelin asked me to do this months ago, we tried to uh, find a date, which is always difficult in our, in our busy lives, to find a date that worked for everybody. Only by accident did this topic, the four loves, fall on the night before Valentine's Day. Neither of us were thinking about Valentine's Day, and that's not because we're bad husbands. We are, but that's not the reason why. It's because we are very pious, and when we think about Valentine's Day, we think about a man named Valentine who was in Rome, who was um, a physician, and was imprisoned for his faith, and tradition says that when he died in 270, he left a note for the jailer's son, a note of encouragement, and then Hallmark got a hold of this idea and ruined everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of ruining everything, um, Pastor Martin texted me during the Super Bowl. I was at that point not watching because I was driving kids around from volleyball. I caught the second half, but apparently there was a commercial about the four loves, and uh, they did a pretty good job of talking about it, except they missed, I don't know, Jesus, right? But they weren't selling Jesus, they were selling insurance. And insurance companies also ruin everything with hallmarks. So, yeah. All right. The handout you have just has the four um, Greek words that we're going to study tonight. All of them could be translated into English as love. But let me start with a story um, from when I was a pastor in Minnesota. In Minnesota, where I lived, uh, we were very new, near the Upper Sioux Reservation. Wonderful people. Um, some were uh, members of my church. Um, and I would do a Sunday jail service in a town maybe 15 miles away. And I met a young adult woman um, there. Um, and I don't, there, there were plenty of other people from other ethnicities there. Um, so I don't want to in, uh, be racist or anything like that. Uh, fine people in the Upper Sioux community. 
but there was a wayward gal there. And the first time I met her, so we go into this little room, and I have the men first, and there was always more men in jail than women. Sometimes there would only be one or two people uh, on the woman's side. Now, that day, there was two women who came in for the service. One was an immigrant, uh, probably middle age, at least 45, probably in her 50s. I don't know why she was in jail. She was from Mexico. I don't think she knew why she was in jail. All she could do was cry. She didn't know a lick of English. There was a Spanish Bible there, and so the best I could do was read from the Spanish Bible to her. John 3.16, a couple other passages that I knew. That's kind of all I could do. The next Sunday, it was still those two ladies in jail, but the, um, but the, the, the Mexican immigrant uh, remained in her cell. I think she was waiting maybe to have a visitor or to be transferred somewhere. But the young uh, native lady came, and I asked her about her f- new friend because I noticed that they could communicate a little bit. And so I asked this young lady, um, I said, do you know Spanish? And she said, no, but I know Italian. And you can, they're romance languages, and so you can kind of uh, figure out uh, each other's uh, languages there. And so I had to ask, how did, in western rural Minnesota, did this upper Sioux lady learn Italian? And she had gone away to a native school where they taught languages, Lakota, um, and then, for some reason, Italian. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and so we started to talk about language, and I asked her uh, to, to give me something in Lakota or whatever. And at this time, her boyfriend, with whom she had a couple children, um, was also in jail. And I wasn't supposed to do this, but I would pass, pass messages back and forth um, week in and week out to them. Even though they were in the same building, they could not see each other. And um, she talked about love, and she gave me the Lakota word for love. As I got to know her, she probably was the most tragic and yet the most beautiful soul that I've ever met. She was a savant. She was probably the brightest person I've ever come across. So I asked her, I said, do you dream in a different language? And she said, I do. Right? I do. So some of you who know enough about a different language, that's a whole different thing than being able to be, to be conscious and then, and then maybe even subconscious in that language. And we talked about how these different words bring out different meanings and the, and the concept of love as she was describing her feelings for her boyfriend and her, and her two boys. She's talked about it that maybe English didn't quite have the right word for her feelings. And so the next time I was there, we did the four loves. I'd like to tell you that she uh, got herself clean. She was in for drugs. Um, I'd like to tell you that um, she became a member of my church and taught Sunday school, but I can't. She was tragic because she told me once I've been running for, um, she said, I can't remember the exact number, but she's been, I've been running for like 12 years. She meant she had been using for 12 years, and I asked her about that. Heroin at 13. Later, I found out how old she was, 
and I did the math and I said, so you had been, because pot came before heroin, um, so you've been using since six? And she said, with my mother, who was the one watching the two children right now, right? So you had this most tragic and yet most beautiful, brilliant soul right before me. She did go to rehab, but she ran away again. I saw her a couple other times. Sometimes she was, had an edge to her. Other times we connected. But I told her about these four loves, and it took for her because she was a linguistic type person. She got it, right? And it hit home, and I, I have no doubt that that, that that talk of Christ's love will be enough, and I'll get to see her in heaven, and she will we'll talk languages again. All right. Um, what I'm going to do here with these four loves um, is just go through each one in a bit here. These are Greek words that describe kind of a, a single concept in English called love. C.S. Lewis made it famous with his book, The Four Loves, but I'm going to take a different tact than what C.S. Lewis did. I'm gathering most of this stuff from a variety of, of sources. None of this really is mine. I haven't had an independent thought probably my entire life. <laughs> Mostly from a professor that I had in college, and I didn't learn it, this in college from him, but, but later on. In fact, one time I was having a conversation um, with this former professor of mine, and we were talking languages a little bit, not necessarily the four loves. Actually, I was, I was asking him, because I had, I had a paper in his class. Uh, the, the class was Religious Wars and Revolutions, and I had to write a paper on uh, the English Revolution. And I thought it was super, super boring. Right? And I asked him, I said, how come, how come this portion of English uh, history was so boring? He said, it's because their language, English. He was a German professor. And he thought that in heaven we're all going to speak German kind of thing. And there's some truth to that, that English tends to be um, maybe not the best language to describe big events and big feelings and big concepts. And German and Greek are better languages to describe these bigger things. Latin is a very legal language. But Greek is much more flowery, and so it's going to have more words for concepts like love. And then I asked him this question. I said, is it because English speakers are so shallow that we only have one word for love? Or does the English language affect how we think about love and therefore maybe even how we love? kind of a chicken or an egg question that has no answer. Well, he had an answer, and very quickly he said, the language affects us. And the more I thought about that, I thought there's maybe something to that, because right at the beginning, God creates things with words, right? So the first day of class in the semester when I teach freshmen about the Bible, I say, God created the world with words. And on the test, the first question will be, how did God create the world? 
and if you answer his power, I'm going to quit. It's his words. God says, everything's about words. I created this place with words. Let there be light. I want to deal with my people with words, not just miracles, but with words. I would go so far as to say that we are people of words. Everything's about words, whether we really think about it or not. Um, you may say, oh, well, pastor, I, I dream in color. Well, good for you, but how are you going to tell me? With words. And then along comes Jesus, and John calls him the Word. Words are very powerful, and they can affect us in very profound ways. And so it matters that we dig a little bit deep in these things called words. So maybe let's just go through these four Greek words, if it's okay with you. I'm going to start with philia. This is where we get this town name for Philadelphia, brotherly love. When I think of philia, I think, by the way, all of these words, you can hear the meaning as I pronounce the words. Philia is very light. It can be deep, but it is a light kind of thing. I would think that this is the love of similars. So similars attract, usually in friendship. You didn't choose your family, that's a different kind of love. I'm willing to bet you didn't choose your husband or your wife, there was something that drew you to that person, and it was something much different than, oh, we both like the same music, right? Philia is the love of similars. It's a friendship kind of love, but a friendship can go very, very deep. But it's different than the love of a family and especially the love of a husband and wife because it's a love that you can put down and you can pick back up again and you don't put down a part of yourself. If I would lose my wife, whether it be by a death, whether it be even by um, a divorce, something of the will, um, I would lose a part of myself. And you start to begin to think, maybe God was right when he said the two become one flesh. That when man and wife are not together for a variety of reasons, doesn't matter if it was an amical divorce or whatever, is still painful. Nobody says, I hope I get divorced one day. And if you are divorced, that doesn't mean that the world's going to end or somehow you're just this terrible, whatever. That we're not talking about that because we have forgiveness and we get new fresh starts all the time. So I'm not necessarily trying to give guilt here, but you know what I mean. That this was a ripping apart of the flesh. And I sat with plenty of widows after maybe a one, two, three weeks after the funeral, you know, when all of the, all of the hot dishes <laughs> have been used up and the cards have been read and the thank yous have been written and the flowers have, have, have uh, wilted and then nobody's there. So I would come and I sat enough times with somebody to say, who would say this, that I know it's true. 
They would say to me, Pastor, I cannot quite explain it, but I believe that there's a part of me missing. Like, there's just, it's a physical kind of thing a part of me is missing. And I would say, now you know what God meant when the two become one flesh. And so in premarital counseling, I would say that, that exact thing to these young, these young people who are about to get married. And I would say, don't wait until it's too late to appreciate it. That you start to finish each other's sentences. That as much as he snores when he's gone, you can't fall asleep. That you may even start looking <laughs> the same. And, uh, you know, they say that's true. I've gotten more beautiful every day. That is a good line. I wish it wasn't recorded because then I could use it tomorrow night. But Philly is different because I can put that down. I can't put down my wife without putting down a part of me. I can't say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a five-year break and go live on the beach you know, we'll get back together in 2025. Can't do that without putting a part of me down. But I can with my friends, where I can put that down and pick back up right where we left off. And I've had this experience, and I think I'm probably have this experience more than you do just because I'm guessing many of you are Wisconsin natives and lived here your whole life and, and, and haven't haven't, uh, haven't moved away or haven't had people move away in the same way I have. So we pastors go to school, some of us, from 13 years old on for 12 years, and we live in dorms for most of it. And then we get sent all over the world. And then we don't see each other maybe for 5, 10, 15 years. But I can tell you from experience that when we get back together, it's the same dumb jokes and the same stories. I put it down and I pick it back up again and that's okay. Um, so this is maybe if you served in the military. Maybe if you worked in an office with somebody for the first 10 years of you out of college or high school and then you didn't see that person for 10 years for whatever reason and then you saw them again, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Your army buddies. That gal that you went to college with and spent, uh, running around, spent your 20s running around with, and then you went your separate ways. You could pick right back up where you left off. But yet it can be also a very deep friendship. And I have that as well with people that maybe I haven't talked to in about 10 years, with both men and women that I went lived in the dorms, say I'm kind of unique because I lived in the dorms in high school and then college. There, there's a connection there, and I know they got my back. This is a type of friendship that you call your buddy up and you say, I need to bury something, and they say, I'll bring the shovel, no questions asked. Now, don't do that, but you know what I mean, <laughs> right? There is... I got your back. And so it's the type of friendship, too, that even though it can be very, very tight and very profound and very deep, it doesn't 
have certain responsibilities attached to it. So I'm guessing you all have friends where you call up and you're like, the boss is being terrible. Um, my husband's a lazy bum. Um, the government or whatever. And they totally back you. Even if they maybe completely disagree with you. Right? They totally back you. That's kind of the job of a friend, right? There may be a time where they're like, you know what, maybe you should rethink your opinion here. But, but if the stakes aren't too high, they go, oh, yeah, that's terrible. You know, and you kind of roll your eyes. You're like, I wouldn't want to work with you. <laughs> I'm guessing what that other person is saying about you is just as bad, right? <laughs> but right now, you're friend, right? And you need that kind of thing. Now, <clears throat> some of you may have married your best friend. Good for you. But I think that probably the healthiest, and I'm not saying that, that this is, that's bad, but there is a good healthy relationship that says, I have friends outside of my family. That can be very, very healthy, right? There are certain things that I cannot be for my wife and I don't want to be. And there are certain things, uh, vice versa, that she can't be for me, and it's more than just we complain about each other. My wife could be and has, she's a professional shopper. And I don't mean that she's, I don't mean that she's materialistic. I'm not saying that. Or she's spoiled or whatever. In fact, it's, it, I'm not being stereotypical here because it comes from her father. She treats shopping like a man treats deer hunting. She sees something and she zeroes in and it's about the hunt and the kill. <laughs> and I am not trying to be funny here. Her sister is the same way, although not as bad. But early on in my marriage, um, well, first of all, she sends me to the grocery store with, with coupons, you know, and this, is, this hurts my pride. Like, I'm, I will pay full price for eggs. It's not that expensive, you know? And if, if I get there and then I say, well, this coupon's not, doesn't work, she will text me the picture of the coupon and the whole people are backed up. <laughs> and I have to show the cashier this coupon on my phone for 25 cents. Her sister and her would they would walk around and they would say, nice shoes, and they would respond, for a while there, they would respond, I'm down to a dollar a wear. And what they meant was, I got that on sale for $14. This is the 14th time I've worn them. They're down to a dollar a wear. <laughs> so when my, my wife comes home from shopping, I don't care what it is, I mean, it, it could be whatever, <clears throat> she will tell me, what a good deal she got on this thing. I don't care. <laughs> I cannot fake caring about that. She needs somebody else who cares about that, not me. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, I'm glad she's that way because um, it's funny, um, you know, this is, there's no male, female kind of, I'm the man kind of in my house. Um, in fact, all the cars are in her name because she has to do the car shopping because she'll sniff out a deal. And I'm like, 
I get there and I'm like, you know, the guy's like, well, I could give you this price, but I'd have to talk to my manager. I'm like, man, he's got to talk to his man. We're going to get in trouble. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, you know, and she, he goes, well, I don't know if I'm going to make any money. I'm like, I don't want, I don't want you to be poor and not make any money. We'll pay a full price, you know? And she's like, Mike, shut up. Right. <laughs> so we need each other. Mostly I need her. So the philia is something different than the relationship I have with, with my wife, and that's healthy. That's healthy. Um, I've explained to her multiple times about, about Big Ten expansion, and now that Rutgers is in the Big Ten, she doesn't get it. And I'm like, do I have to explain this again, right? <laughs> she does not care about what I care about in those things. I need somebody to talk to about that. So philia, you can hear it. It's sort of light. It is the, the love of similars, right? You tend to be friends with people who are similar to you. This is fine for marriage, but I think a lot of marriages are when two people come to, one flat, come to be one flesh and they are different and they fit together and they complement each other, right? I never worried about a young couple that came in and they had completely different interests. I actually thought that was a strength because I knew they would become one flesh. The next one, let's go eros. It's where we get the word erotic. If philia is the, is the love of similars being attracted to each other, then eros is the love of opposites being attracted to each other, right? And those, I'm not, those aren't hard and fast rules, of course. And so you can think of a man and a woman kind of in this, in this love. It is physical, but it's not necessarily sexual. That's where we get the word erotic from. You can have an eros for war in the Greek language. You can have a desire that takes over your physical body for something, and it has nothing to do with romantic love. But mostly we talk about this as a romantic love. It is the attraction, I believe, of opposites in a certain way. So... Um, I would say to young, uh, especially men, but young women too, and I would say, you know, this is great that you're, you're about to get married, and I would go through the four loves in all of my marital counseling, and I would say, um, just so you know, one day you're going to look more like me. <laughs> you can't build this relationship on eros, on passion. At the same time, passion is good and great and can be more than just being attractive in that, that kind of uh, romantic high school kind of way. Um, in fact, a lot of uh, uh, couples that would fight like cats and dogs, I would say, you know, I mean, I know we got some things to work on, I get it, but you know what, there's plenty of marriages that would, that would be happy to have a little passion even if it was sometimes negative, right? Um, passion can be a good thing for each other, and that can be explosive, but not, and that's not good, but it's not always as disastrous as we think it is. So the Eros love, no, notice you need, I'm, what I'm building to, especially kind of the background of all of this is marriage, that philia is good if you married your best friend, but. Eros is wonderful in marriage, but.
I think there needs to be something more there as well. By the way, go back to Philia for a little bit. I think that um, there was a while there, and, and I think it's maybe less so today, but it's probably still there, where there's a lot of parents who want to have a Philia kind of love with their children. Now, Philia in the Greek concept actually can be a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. Um, it gets a little weird. You can look it up on Google later. We won't go there. Um, but that, but the love of a mentor and a mentee could be could be where uh, kind of a a, a, a father-child or a mother-child. Really, I, I think you could see it that way. Maybe if you stretched it. But I think a lot of parents want to be friends with their children. They want to have a philia kind of love. But the philia kind of love is kind of a, a, a quid pro quo kind of love. So, and, and I, I shouldn't feel guilty. Like the guy I hung out with in fifth grade, right? We had this philia kind of love, even though we wouldn't have never had said that way, right? But we grew apart. And I don't have an obligation to him anymore, and he doesn't have an obligation to me anymore, and that's just fine. That's just fine. There's nothing wrong with putting that love down. But if you think that your relationship with your children is, I'm only going to be in this relationship as long as it benefits me, is problematic, right? And so if I'm thinking in a philia kind of love, I'm thinking in the sense that um, I want to be their friend, and so I don't want to be the bad guy. I want my children to like me. So I'm nice to them so that they will like me, right? It is a give-and-take kind of relationship, but that will only end up poorly for the child, right? You can see how that could either spoil the child or they desire something stronger in their, in their, in their parent, right? So uh, that filio kind of love is a selfish kind of love. And when I have a selfish kind of love with friends, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like if you're not doing anything for me anymore, you know, we drifted apart. I don't feel obligated to be your best friend anymore, right? And there's nothing sinful about that. But I can't have this relationship with my children where I want them, I want us to have that kind of give and take. Like if I got to be the bad guy, I got to be the bad guy. And if you don't like me for a, a, a day or a month or a decade, right? I'm willing, I'm willing to not get anything back in this relationship. It's a different kind of love. So philia and then eros. The next one is not found in the New Testament, but it is still uh, of the Greek language that was, would have been common in that, in that era, and that's storge. You can hear it, storge. It is a love, perhaps, of duty. It's often a love that is translated as affection. And I get where they're trying to, and it can be translated that way. You have an affection for, um, for your, your grandparents, if you're younger, right? 
but it's certainly not that you're friends. You don't have an Eros love. You don't have a Philia love with your grandparents. There is an affection there. But the Greeks often would talk about this when they talked about their ancestors in this concept. You kind of owe your ancestors some time in your mind. Like you carry on their memory, right? You live out the family name kind of thing. And so I do think that we could, in certain circumstances, translate storge as a duty kind of love. So when I teach this in college, I say, so on Saturday, you got to go visit uh, grandpa in the nursing home. You don't want to, but you do it anyway. And it's love. It is love. But it's a different kind of love. It is a love of duty. It is a love of affection. Um, that storgate kind of love has kept a lot of marriages going. But I hope better for you. Right? Um, you can imagine couples who um, they stay together because of duty and they do have an affection for each other. Um, but, but I hope more for you. Right? Let's maybe go to agape love then, which I'm sure you have heard of. This is often translated as charity. I think the best concept to think about it is, is that it is a self-sacrificing love. That the person who loves always has the best interest of the object of love in mind. The person who loves always has the best interest of the object in mind. Agape love is the love that you and I really cannot muster up by ourselves. It is the love of Christ, right, that comes to us unconditionally and then goes through us to other people. And it is the basis, I believe, of all of the other loves. So do I agape my friends? Sure, but in a different way than I agape my wife, my parents, or anything else. Back to Storge a little bit. I, I, one way to other think about it is um, the love of country, I think, could also be, be a somewhat of a subset of that Storge, that kind of duty kind of love. Now, agape love if it is going to have the best interest of the object of love in mind, then it's willing to be the bad person, at least on some occasions. Right? Let's talk marriage just a little bit with the agape love. I would, uh, for premarital counseling, um, imagine, I would say, imagine a football field, and you're on the one-yard line over here, and your future spouse is on the other one yard line over here. And I'm going to make you promise the vows of the Bible. I'm sure your poetry of your vows is super cute, but I don't want to hear them in my church. And here's why. Because God is elevating you something uh, above something that you think is happening into a heavenly realm. So when God said, a man and woman would become one flesh, and then later he's, he called himself the husband and his people the bride, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, quite vividly, in fact. 
He did not. It's not like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were up there and be like, oh, we should write a Bible. Oh, these people down here seem to like this marriage thing. Let's describe our love for them in terms of marriage. It's the other way around. He created us in this marriage, mystical marriage kind of thing. I'm the groom. You, the church, are the bride. And then he patterned us to have this beautiful thing called marriage after himself. We are created in his image, not the other way around, right? So when you are getting married and you make these vows, I'm going to make you promise what you cannot do. And so the man is going to say, I will be Jesus Christ to my bride. And the bride will say, I will be the church to my man. And I will treat him as the church treats Jesus Christ. And the man says, I will treat her like Jesus Christ treats his people. And that way you're elevated to something bigger than yourself. And you've also set up yourself for a huge failure. But let's think about this. Another thing I would say is I don't ever want to hear the word compromise. That marriage is not about compromise because compromise makes it a legal kind of binding sort of agreement. Like, well, then I'm like, then we might as well get in front of the altar and we'll shake hands and sign a contract. I do this, you do that. We'll meet in the middle, the 50 yard line. The problem with that is we're not really good at keeping our promises if you haven't noticed. And if I promise 50 yards, there's probably gonna be plenty of times when I'm at 45 or 40 or two. Same for her. And we never meet in the middle then. But if I promise 100, yeah, there's gonna be plenty of days when it's gonna be 99 and 50 and 40 and two. But I've set my sights for 100. And I don't expect one yard from her ever because of agape love. And so I never have a reason to complain about her because I promised all 100 yards every moment of every day. And so did she. Now, guess what happens? Compromise. And there's times I go 60 and she goes 40 and the opposite, right? But I never say 50-yard line I did my deal, what's your problem, right? Because it's not a business agreement, it's a heavenly thing. This is the agape love, often translated as charity, but I think the best way to think about it is self-sacrificing, always having the object of love, their best interest in mind. And so I would say, especially to the men in premarital counseling, so, and I think we, we kind of preached on this because we had the wedding at Cana recently here at St. John's, um, would say, so you're a failure at, G at being Jesus Christ because um, even if you were nice and washed all the disses and, and adored your wife and put her on a pedestal like God says uh, uh, that Jesus does with us, his bride puts us in this beautiful white wedding gown, even though we should have worn a not, the, not the white color on our wedding he just says, she's perfect, and I adore her. Maybe you've done that the best of your ability, but you didn't save her from sins, and you promised to be Jesus to her. 
So I want you to swallow your pride and bring your bride to the groom who can. For your convenience, I'm here every Sunday to do exactly that. Bring yourself to the one who can. So God demands of us this perfection because he wants what's best for us. He also wants to show us you're not even close, so stop trusting in yourself. And then whatever God demands of us, he gives to us in Jesus Christ. He says, stop doubting and believe, knowing full well that we have bound wills and we cannot believe, and then he gives us the faith. He says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, and then gives us the righteousness of himself that he earned. Right? And so you have this beautiful kind of thing where you go, agape love is up here. This is what I promise. This is who I'm supposed to be. This is what has been given to me. And every time I fail at it, I still get it. I still get it from God. And so I think it's an all-encompassing kind of thing. It does talk about how we are saved through God's grace, but also how we are to treat each other and how I should look at my failures and where I should look for hope in my failures, this agape love. Um, so... We need to think a little bit differently, and maybe it starts with the language. So you may think, this is kind of strange, isn't it? That I would say, I love cheesecake, and I love my wife, as if there was no difference. That maybe I need a different word, but I only speak English. So I got to mean something different in my mind and in my heart when I use those words with that, with that context. All right, um, just a couple of biblical stories then. Um, it's kind of an interesting one. It happens at the end of John's Gospel, where if you remember, uh, Peter um, has denied his Lord three times, Monday, Thursday. After Jesus rises from the dead, he does appear to the apostles. But then they leave, and they go back to Galilee. They're kind of like, well, we have to make a living, and Jesus is popping here and there, uh, you know, making resurrection appearances to people. Over 500, we're told. And so Peter goes back, and he goes back to fishing. He doesn't know what to do. And I don't think yet, it's not until he gets the Spirit that he becomes the kind of the leader that we know after after, uh, after the, the, the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, right? There's two different kinds of St. Peter's, right? There is the brash one who fails that we know most of the gospel. And then we have the one in Acts who seems very timid at times. Although he's a, he's a, it can be a very powerful speaker. He's timid around Paul. Paul tells him you're wrong. And he goes, okay, you know. And uh, he seems timid on handling certain situations in the church. Um, I think the difference is the spirit, right? The spirit kind of, kind of takes out the pride that he had, the self-righteousness, the idea that he could do it all on his own, and maybe he's a little bit more at peace there. But in between those two uh, St. Peter's, we have this occasion where Jesus visits the Sea of Galilee while they are fishing. And... It's early in the morning, and they're coming back to shore, and they see someone has built a fire and is cooking breakfast on the shore, and it's Jesus. They're having fish for breakfast, which seems very weird to me, but I'm not a first-century Palestinian fisherman. 
So Jesus is frying up fish, and Peter's excited, and you remember the story. He comes, and he takes off his coat, and he wades in, and there he sees his resurrected Lord, and he eats with his Lord, right? We eat with our Lord in Holy Communion. This is a, if, if we eat with him, that means he's alive, right? It's our resurrection experience with him. And then we have this tale where they have a conversation there, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Which is a very strange thing to ask, right? And Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus says, no, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter is getting kind of offended. Of, of course I love you. And then, and then he says uh, to Peter, Jesus says, feed my lambs, right? And, and in a way kind of says, I want you to go be pastor now. Now, they're probably speaking Aramaic. And maybe perhaps they were using the same word love. That makes the most sense to me. Like if I, if I said to my wife, do you love me? And she says, yes, I love you. And I go, do you love me? And she says, yes, are you deaf? And then I say, do you, no, do you really love me? And she's like, this is, you know, you're being weird and awkward here, right? You know? But the Greek translation says this. Jesus asks, do you agape me? And Peter says, affilia you. Now, I think they probably said the same word. They're speaking in Aramaic, but the translation gives us what was actually in the heart of Peter. Do you agape me? Yeah, I, I like you, bro. No, it would have been more than that. Um, yes. We have a very, very deep friendship. Do you agape me? We have a very deep friendship. No, do you agape me? Now, when God comes to you and says, do you agape me? You go, only by your power. Right? Because even Peter couldn't muster up agape in the way that's needed. I get kind of perturbed. It's one of those kind of, you know, old man on the front yard because I'm a pastor kind of thing. Like most of the things that are kind of generic Christianity out there, most of those pastors just go, we roll our eyes and go, oh my goodness, because we know, we know the meaning behind it. And, and some of that is important for us to point out, but a lot of times, honestly, we're just being kind of jerks because we know more theology than everybody else and we want to point it out, right? You know? Um, but it really bothers me when somebody describes somebody else as, well, he loves Jesus. He loves God. Okay. Um, that's not how I would describe myself. And I don't, I don't find really very few places in the Bible where, where that, I mean, there are descriptions of, and he loved God, Right. Um, but we had this prime example of Peter couldn't muster up agape. I guess I wouldn't define myself in terms of, I, I don't like defining myself, especially in relationship to God, with a sentence that starts with I. <laughs> I love Jesus. Sometimes. And the only way I do is because he loved me first. And so we can go to 1 John 4, 7. You know these words as well. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God. Think baptism there. Being converted made something new and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now the word complete, I'd like to talk about that a little bit because I think we should think about love as something that moves. We'll talk about love as a person in a little bit, but the love of God comes to me and then goes out to you. So I would suggest that it's not really my love. In the same way, do I believe? Do I have faith? Yes, I'm the one that does the believing, but the Holy Spirit makes me believe, puts the faith in my heart, however you want to explain it. In the same way, yeah, I love my wife, but really it's God's love through me to her. And so I love only because God loved me first. And I don't mean this in the way that I think I grew up thinking this way, and maybe many of you have thought this way. Um, God loved me, therefore, and we rightfully can see this from the text, I am then obligated to love somebody else because God was good to me, so then I should be good to somebody else. That's closer to storge, isn't it? Right? The duty kind of love that we have for our ancestors, that kind of stuff. It's not a free kind of love. Right? I bet you heard a million sermons about God loved us, and now in thankfulness, we go out and love other people. There's nothing wrong with that, except it makes it an obligation. What happens when you don't live thankfully, which is me every day? Did, did God really love me then? Did I accept it? Is there something wrong with me? It's better to think about yourself as a vessel of agape love that then is given out. Now, when it comes through me, it's going to come out with, with all the dirt <laughs> and with all of the insecurities and with all the selfishness that I bring to the equation. But anything that I give to you, to my children, to my students, to my wife, really originated in God. And it was agape love when it started, and it's still agape love as deluded as it is. And I think that's so much better and so much more accurate when we think about the concept, especially of marriage, that it's a heavenly thing that we happen to be a privilege to be put into, right? Instead of something that originates in man. Peter had, was talking about love that originated in him. And he wasn't quite getting it that God loved him and that he was now supposed to go love the sheep. But notice, notice that in that story, God doesn't stop him and say, we're not leaving this little makeshift uh, uh, kitchen, this little campground, until you get this right. Right? Peter does not get the answer right, and God still says, go feed my sheep, you fool. (laughs) I'll make it work. 
right? I find great comfort in that, that he sends me out and says, what a moron. That's all right. I love him anyway, and we're going to be just fine, right? And I thought that too when I married all those couples I was talking about. Oh, my God, this guy's a moron, but it'll be all right. <laughs> all right. So um, <clears throat> why don't we um, then go to probably the most famous of all the, the loves in the Bible, and that is 1 Corinthians 13. How many have had this? Had, you had this at your wedding, right? This read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And this is the one that's on your wall, I'm sure. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, and you may think about completion there, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is the um, Pachelbel's canon of the scripture. Um, that canon, you know it. Um, it's this beautiful piece of music that has been ruined because it's at every wedding and all we think about is wedding when we hear it. 1 Corinthians 13 is a deep, deep, deep chapter. Um, but we think about weddings or we think about just the section of that that's I'm guessing in 90% of your homes, something was like a wedding gift or something or an anniversary gift. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's on a plaque or something like that. Um, but there's a lot going on here. Um, you know, when I, and now this is me being cynical pastor, but when I see love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. And I look at that and I go, well, I'm 0 for 10. <laughs> <laughs> Nope, not even that one. Nope, not even that one, right? Um, and I got to keep reading. And I got to think about when I was a child, I talked like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me, and someday I'll become a man. <laughs> I'm getting there, you know? Remember we talked about spiritual growth, like we talk too much about spiritual growth in the moment. Growth is always something you look back upon, right? And uh, I use the analogy of the doorpost. So 
you know, you were five and you got a notch on the doorpost and you kept going up and up and up. But you never, you, I bet you maybe you were, especially for boys who wanted to be tall, you're like, you're like, grow. <laughs> but it never happens. So you can't say, spiritually grow. Nothing happened. It's only that you lost yourself in your life that you look back and you say, oh, I grew. God did put me in those right places. He did put me in the right situation. And here's the kicker, I think, is that um, there was a point, and I think it's probably true of everybody who had a notch on their, on their uh, um, doorframe, that you didn't do the last couple notches. Especially for boys who, you know, would grow into high school. You had other things to worry about. You stopped caring if you grew or not. And I think the same is true that I'm so lost in the love of God and I don't have to worry about how I'm doing with him because I got Jesus agape love that I lose myself in whatever my vocation is. I lose myself in my marriage and my job or whatever. Stop caring if I grew spiritually or not. I just did. Now, this is complete. We've heard this word completed twice now. In that passage from John, the love is complete. I think part of this, maybe not the whole thing, but the love is complete. It starts with God, it goes through me, and then it ends with somebody else, right? The love becomes complete. The cycle becomes completed. I don't know um, if that's exactly what John was thinking about, but that's how I look at that, and I, and I do look at that passage that way a little bit, even, even if I'm wrong. The idea about when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I find great comfort in this, that God fully knows who I am. I don't even know who I am. I mean, I have an image of myself, and when I look in the mirror, I go, that can't be right. Did I get that? I mean, I think, I literally think of myself as 24, right? Like, I bet you, you rarely think about yourself as your right age. There are moments when you're like, you think you're younger. When you get up in the morning and you're sore, you think you're older, <laughs> right? You don't, you never think about, we don't have a really good concept of ourselves. And if you think you do, ask the person closest to you, right? Because you, here guys, you think you're funny? Your wife doesn't think so. <laughs> that was another thing I would say to people that were, I got married, uh, you know, I, you, could, you could almost say, okay, that's going to be a problem 10 years from now when Especially, it's, it could go both ways, but especially when a woman married a guy who was charming, and I don't mean in a bad way, or, or very, very loving to other people. Like, he's the guy, like, it could be nine o'clock at night, and um, his best friend from fifth grade comes and says, um, you know, can you take a look at my, my car? And, and the guy's like, of course I will. And he walks out. And there's like children that need to be put to bed kind of thing. And the thing that 
that that woman fell in love with in her husband now becomes the most annoying thing in the world. <laughs> right? He's so charming, but it's the same 10 jokes, and, and, and he's the life of the party, and I'm like, yeah. You know what I mean? All right. I don't know how we got on that, but... Oh, oh no, no, I know. No, I know. So you don't, you don't know your faults, right? Because you, you all have blind spots, and the person who is very close to you um, probably too nice to point them out, but if you prod them a little bit, I bet you they'd be willing to tell you that this is your fault. So I don't fully know myself. I also don't fully know my gifts. Like, I'm, I'm fourth-generation pastor. There is nothing that has surprised me being a pastor except maybe a couple of things. I knew what was coming. I knew, how, I knew the lifestyle I did not, I was not that idealistic seminarian coming out and thinking, oh, it's going to, everybody's going to love me because I, I, I speak Jesus to them. I, I know the reality of it, right? But that did not make me confident of being a pastor. It made me petrified. And I wasn't sure if I could stand in front of people and talk, right? I didn't think I'd be good at this. Um, I thought I'd be better at that. But I didn't know myself. But God did. And he placed me into positions where I could flourish. And that includes my relationships in love. Right? And as you grow older, you start to see that, don't you? And you start to hopefully appreciate that in other people. Uh, my supervising pastor, my bishop, when I was a vicar, uh, it was his 25th anniversary in the ministry, and they had, they had this huge, big meal. And they brought in somebody to roast him. Um, and uh, afterwards, after this lovely evening, he got up and did the thank yous. You know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for the person who came in. And then he said, and he said to his wife, Betsy, he said, and I thank Betsy. She's not the perfect wife, but she's the perfect wife for me. Right? And I'll never forget that. In fact, I just saw him last week and I said, I'll never forget that. And I said, You said to Betsy, and then he repeated it word by word. He had been thinking about it for a while, too. This was 15 years ago or whatever, uh, more than that, 16, 17 years ago when he said that. Um, so I have great confidence that when I get into heaven, I will fully know as I am fully known. So you may not know right now but you will fully know. That's something pretty deep there. There's a lot more going on in chapter 13. I'd like to go back to the beginning, though. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and not knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flames, if, 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 but I have not love, then I am nothing. More than that, I am a resounding gong. So like, think about like a, like a big symbol and someone hitting it, right? It's a gong. And I kind of take that as, um, let, me, let me rephrase it. If you can do everything right and you're super pious and righteous, but you have not love, you're just making noise and you're annoying the rest of us. 
I don't want to hear it. And then more than that, if you're a martyr, if you're a prophet, if you, if you have all this knowledge, if you, if you gave everything to the poor, but you have not love, you are nothing because the greatest is love. The greatest is love. Now, what does that mean? And uh, Faith, hope, and, and love, like faith and hope kind of fade away. That seems problematic to us who are always about faith. Faith's the most important thing, right? I think one way to take it, and I don't know that, I don't think St. Paul meant it this way, but this is the way I, I, for a while, was looking at this, is when you get into heaven, there's love, but there's no faith, and there's no faith because you don't have to believe in anything anymore because it's already there. You'll finally know with certainty. You don't know anything with certainty down here except by the gift of the Spirit. But in heaven, we'll know with certainty, and I don't know what that's going to be like. This is perhaps the greatest mystery of heaven. Like we're always talking, you know, people are always kind of like, well, what's, you know, is my, you know, are there going to be animals in heaven? Yeah. You know, are you going to, are we going to eat animals in heaven? I think so. I don't know. You know, is, you know, what about grab? I don't know. I don't know. Stop asking me questions about heaven. (laughs) I went to uh, my, my, uh, one of my kids uh, classrooms and it was, it was for ask the pastor. So I went there for an hour and I'm like, I'll do this, you know? And some of them were really good, but then when we started going on heaven, I knew exactly where we're going. You know, I'm like, listen, I, I don't know. I don't know. The greatest mystery, though, I think is how, do we, how, will, we, how will we function without faith and hope? Like, how do you live when it's already full for you and you're not necessarily looking forward to something else. I think we'll look forward to something else because it'll be grace upon grace upon grace. But when we think about hope and faith, we go the weekend, vacation, retirement, um, uh, you know, having children, getting a promotion. We're always looking towards something that's going to happen that's going to be just a little bit better than what we have right now. But what happens when everything's already perfect? I don't know. I don't know. It's something to think about. But another way to think about love being the ultimate is that the goal is love, the love of Christ for us, and then the love that we have for other people. So um, you can have everything right theologically, but if you have not love, you're just making noise and you're annoying the rest of us. And I wonder if in the modern world, we Christians who believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible and all the rest, who had to fight for this as truth, made truth the most important thing. We made truth the most important thing and being right the most important thing and we forgot about love. Right? If you have the best dogmatics but have not love, then you are a resounding gong. Now, right away, we're like, hold on now, because you have to have the truth that matters. Absolutely. And here's how I think about it. Notice that we said that God is love. And we also know that Jesus is truth, the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is God and is love, and if Jesus is truth then truth and love go together. And how dare I split the two? 
How dare I split the two that say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as we're nice to each other. How dare I split Jesus into two? If I say we got to get this right and, and uh, to hell with everybody else who doesn't agree with us, I'm splitting the two. I'm splitting Jesus. And so I think ultimately love is a person. Three people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, maybe. And so is truth. And that's something profound to think about. I would also go so far as to say that truth serves love. That the goal of truth is that I love you. So I may tell you the truth as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a parent, because I love you. Because I love you, I will tell you the truth. And that is, of course, then then the basis for our evangelism. I'm willing to be the bad guy. I'm willing to challenge maybe your worldview. I'm willing to not be in this very nice relationship that has, has no depth to it or whatever, precisely because I agape you, precisely because I love you. And that way, truth serves love. All right. There were some other things I was going to say, but I don't know them anymore. <laughs> and uh, we're about where I wanted to stop and give you a few minutes um, um, to speak. Um, but I'm going to end this recording podcast um, because that's terrible radio to have somebody speak not into a microphone, right? So um, I'm going to end the podcast now and then we'll have maybe a few minutes of discussion, your opinions or questions. <laughs>